The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. For most of us, Lolita is the gateway, that mix of highbrow prose and unseemly passion, if unseemly passion is a strong enough phrase for the thoughts and conduct of Humbert Humbert in the direction of the 12-year-old Dolores. It's a heady mix, and we can throw detective novels and other ingredients into the literary soup. For many of us, I suppose, the Experience is one of wonder. Who is this author writing with such fervency, such music, such heat about such an obviously taboo subject? Who is he and what is he doing to me, the reader? And so the gate swings open and we enter the world of Vladimir Nabokov. It's a world filled with butterflies and books, strong passions about both, and chess and tennis and a hatred for Sigmund Freud. Nabokov saw words in colors. He was as prolific and as astute in English as well as his mother tongue, Russian. He seemed aristocratic, and he kind of was, almost literally, but he also kind of slummed it by his standards. It was the kind of privileged life that allowed him to live for years in a Swiss hotel, but a slightly shabby one. His life would have been very different had revolution not interfered. Nabokov was born in Russia to a very wealthy and well-connected family, and then he lost it all, fleeing one step ahead of the Bolsheviks to Berlin. His politically active father died during an assassination attempt. Vladimir went to England for his studies and from there to Berlin, where he wrote poetry and novels and went on butterfly hunting expeditions and translated his novels. All this before he ever went to America, ever drove those highways, ever gave those famous lectures on literature, ever achieved bestsellerdom with his censor-defying novel. He lived a whole life in Berlin, a fascinating period, for a fascinating literary figure. And there, in what my mind can only picture in black and white, he attended one of the great new art forms of the 20th century— also highbrow, also genre, the cinema of Weimar, Germany. He did more than attend, as we shall hear. But attend he did, and watch. What was he doing? Was it an escape? Or a set of instructions? How formative was it for him as an artist, and even as a person? We talked to an expert on this period in Nabokov's life, Luke Parker, today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson, still smiling from that Rupert Holmes episode, as I hope you are as well. What a strong sense of humor he has. That was a lot of fun. Speaking of which, we have a lot of fun today diving into the world of Nabokov. You can get lost in these books, the books he wrote while in Berlin, which include novels like Glory and Laughter in the Dark and Despair and The Luzine Defense. Oh, and King Queen Knave. Nabokov was also working out chess problems in these days. A lot of chess in these books. You can get lost in his biography, too. Fifteen years of his life. This was a very formative time period for Nabokov. So let's do this. 
Let's bring out Luke Parker, author of the book Nabokov Noir, Cinematic Culture and the Art of Exile. And to give you a taste of it, let's hear from a review. This is by Eric Nyman, uh, professor at Berkeley and author of the work Nabokov Perversely. He says, quote, Luke Parker's book fundamentally alters our understanding of Nabokov's literary career and his aesthetics in the period before and just after his emigration to America. In addition, it casts important new light on Russian emigre culture and shows how deeply it was embedded in the cinema of the 1920s and 30s. What is perhaps most remarkable about Nabokov Noir is that it shows how Nabokov's cinema theory and cinema praxis shaped the writing and the revising of his fiction, end quote. Hmm. We're lucky to have the author of that work here today, Luke Parker, after this. Hey, grown-ups! the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Luke Parker, visiting assistant professor of Russian at Amherst College, who has previously taught at Colby, Oberlin, and Stanford. He's here today to talk about his book, Nabokov Noir, Cinematic Culture and the Art of Exile. Luke Parker, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. One of the things that readers of Nabokov quickly learn is that he has a few favorite subjects that he returns to again and again, butterflies and chess and, and language and, of course, literature and so on. And today we're going to talk about a couple of those. Exile is something he often talks about and and what it meant for him, and, and the cinema is another. But first, let's start with you. So when did you first read Nabokov? So I think it was in grad school. Mm -hmm. There was a course on Nabokov, and we read his Russian fiction, and we read his American fiction, and it was one of those single author, you dive in, you kind of, you know, you just mm. get into the head of this guy by the end of the course. I think that's my first memory of reading, although mm -hmm. he has ways of popping up in unexpected places. Yeah. Do you remember what your impression was when you read him in grad school? Yeah, that this was a, a brilliant writer who was always one step ahead mm -hmm. and was maybe, maybe the joke was on me. 
But mm. I also felt like the joke was something that I could share. And this yeah. is one of the kind of questions I've tried to get to the bottom of. Mm. Who's being laughed at? Here? That's a really good way of putting it. So were you already a, a scholar of Russian literature? I was a guy who liked Russian literature. I don't know uh-huh. if I'd go so far as to say I was a I was a scholar. You know, I had taken Russian since uh, high school. Mm-hmm. I had a good friend who was Russian, a fantastic teacher of Russian. So this was back in London. And I'd read in 19th century literature in translation. You know, you pick up Turgenev, Tolstoy, and you read one thing, and then you go out and you buy everything, right? And you just sit and read these things through. Yeah. So I was already already kind of deep into Russian literature by that point. Yeah, right. And then Nabokov, I was kind of surprised when I first encountered Nabokov. He's He's got such a different sensibility from what I was, I think, expecting from my readings in Tolstoy and Chekhov and and so on. Was this the late 20th century when you were reading him? He feels so 20th century to me. Mm, That's really interesting, because so many people have talked about him as a kind of early postmodernist writer. And yet, I guess, in many ways, the late 20th century is the time of the postmodern, and now we're post-post, right? I mean, 21st century, or maybe in a different kind of moment where even the claim to postmodernism feels somewhat dated, maybe in a way that mod- claims to modernism felt dated in the late 20th century. Right. In terms of his difference, right, just connecting to Russian literature, this was something that Russian critics in the 1920s and 30s when he was writing were drawing attention to this un-Russianness yeah. of his writing, that he wasn't what foreign readers would be expecting you know there's this huge boom at the beginning of the 20th century in tolstoy and particularly dostoevsky with constance garnet and Mm -hmm. her translations all across europe in the united states you know this kind of russian literature is the thing yeah and he doesn't feel even in his russian works very russian if we dig in a bit more i think we see that he actually does fit a particular line of Russian literature that doesn't translate as well. Mm. Um, okay. What authors or what features of those books would you place him into? So there's a kind of concern for linguistic brilliance that is alien to both Dostoevsky and Tolstoy, although they both know what they're doing with right, language, and right. particularly Dostoevsky, right? But there's a kind of luminescence about his writing and a kind of a humor and an absurdity, and also a, what Russian critics at the time were saying was a distance from his characters and from the fate of his characters that his readers felt that felt very un-Russian. But if you go back to people like Nikolai Gogol, that he wrote you know, a book mm. in the 1940s mm-hmm. for an American audience about, um, or even in many ways the prose of Pushkin, kind of great Russian poet Alexander Pushkin, actually there is a kind of tradition there that he taps into. It's just not the one of the big realist novel. Yeah. You know, I, I'm always struck by this quote from 
John Cheever's diaries, which I'll paraphrase, but he, he was talking about his admiration for Nabokov, and this is in the 1950s, I believe, and that's sort of the period where a lot of Americans associate with Nabokov, I think, because of Lolita, and, and I'm glad you and I are going to be talking today about the Berlin years in the 20s and 30s, because it's such a fascinating period. But this comment, I think, kind of sheds light on what we've just been talking about, where Cheever had said, you know, I really admire Nabokov. Man, nobody can can put together sentences like this. And, and then he said, you know, the big difference between him and me is he'll write about, you know, magicians, or he'll write about these sort of more aesthetic topics. And he said, my my dad had his underwear hanging on a nail on the bathroom door, and that's the world I come from. And mm-hmm. it does seem like there's an earthiness to Dostoevsky or Tolstoy where they seem like they're, you know, more comfortable in that world or they prioritize a kind of connection with, with whether it's peasants or whether it's just people that Nabokov seems to be, he comes across as a little more... Uh, refined and and someone who's more detached from that. I don't know if it's fair, but that's that's the impression that comes across from his prose. Yeah, I think it's certainly in his American period, he cultivates a distance both from his characters and potentially even from his readers, mm-hmm. although it's it's a stance, it's like a pose. I think he really did care about how he was read and he did care about what readers would find in his in his fiction. At the same time though in the earlier period Russian critics are like jokingly gently criticizing him for being too clear-sighted for seeing too much mm. that his gaze penetrates further almost than kind of exceeding the bounds of propriety. And so there's an element there of a kind of visual virtuosity Mm -hmm. that, you know, obviously links with the cinema, but also a kind of scandalousness that really does link him back to someone like Dostoevsky. Um, And a lot of work has been done on showing that, you know, later Nabokov has to disavow Dostoevsky, but he actually draws so much from him, especially the um, the stuff under the fingernails, mm. as he called it. Mm-hmm. Right? There's a lot of sordidness and grime, despite the sparkle of the prose. Right. We did an episode on Nabokov and Freud and kind of his hatred for Freud, but he was he was digging into that territory. He didn't like the way. People would use Freud to kind of interpret literature, but he he definitely was digging into some psychological depths. Yeah. I mean, there's a great phrase. His friend Gleb Struva, who was a, also a Russian emigre, also a young guy at the time, was a professor, ended up being kind of a great professor of Russian literature. But at the time, he, he pointed out to, to French readers, actually, in an article he wrote about him, saying, this healthy vigorous young guy sporty you know nicely dressed for some reason constantly is writing about these depraved kind of manic <laughs> sordid characters <laughs> why is this right and i think there's definitely some truth to that okay so let's go back to when nabokov 
uh, went into exile. What year exactly did he arrive in Berlin, and what were the circumstances of his leaving Russia? So he left in 1919. He was 19 years old, about to turn 20, um, and he had just come from the Crimea. So his family had fled south following the Russian Revolution during the Civil War, this incredibly dangerous time mm. you know his father sent the family on ahead so nabokov was one of five children the eldest the kind of the many would say the favorite child he had his father's name vladimir so you know he has the same name first name and patronymic vladimir vladimirovich so it's kind of this mark of this closeness to his father his father's incredibly important to him this kind of irony of history in 1916 so still as a teenager, his uncle had died and left him an estate worth millions. Mm. So he had this kind of incredible early independence and wealth that one year later, you know, he literally lost everything. Wow. When we talk about him in Berlin and about, you know, how does he relate to exile, which is obviously a, needs an answer of more than one sentence, but there's a general kind of optimism and a criticism of those who just complain about all they've lost. And one thing I think it's important to remember is that this is somebody, even though they were young, that actually did lose a huge amount, mm. uh, not just the kind of the family home, but also this kind of independent wealth and future there as well. Yeah. And was he, did he arrive by himself? Was his family able to join him in Berlin or what kind of community and family in particular did he have in berlin yeah so he went with his mother and father and his siblings and they eventually ended up in berlin and he and his younger brother then went to cambridge mm. so he um he did a, a ba a bachelor's degree he did french and russian and yeah finished that in 1922 so in some ways this kind of was this huge break obviously for the family in other ways, they're moving to Berlin. They traveled throughout Europe when he was growing up. You know, his family was very, very wealthy, upper class, aristocratic family with a mansion and a beautiful street in St. Petersburg with a huge estate about 50 miles out of St. Petersburg with three mansions on it and villages and schools and hospitals. I mean, it's this yeah. whole thing. And so it's a break. And yet he's able to then just go and almost just be a kind of a normal European undergraduate at Cambridge taking his degree. The kind of one, arguably the bigger break in his life and arguably the, the biggest crisis is that in 1922, in March, his father is assassinated mm. public. And so this leaves him basically as the kind of maybe not quite the head of the family, but certainly as the oldest son, right, that puts this kind of responsibility on him. And it's and it's obviously a huge shock and tragedy, having escaped, right, having escaped, his father had been very active in politics, had been imprisoned, had been placed in solitary confinement by the, you know, Russian Tsarist regime, he had nearly been killed during the revolution, he had just managed to escape. And there they get to the safety of Berlin, and that's when the tragedy happens. Mm. And so, was was Nabokov determined to be a writer when he arrived in exile, or is that something that he formulated 
later? Did he know what he wanted to be when when all of this was happening? He had already published poems. So his kind of gateway into writing is two things. One, poetry. I mean, he just writes poetry as a teenager. He'd published very small limited editions, right? Um, mm-hmm. Poetry uh, collections before he'd left. It's juvenilia. It's not terrible, but it's compared to the many other volumes of his collected works. It's definitely a, a kind of work of a very beginning writer. So poetry, he continued to publish poetry in the early 20s, published two more volumes while in Berlin, but then also translations. So his first two books of prose that he publishes are uh, translations, one from French and one from English, which is Alice in Wonderland. Mm. Right. Um, and he did this actually, yeah, in in twenty two, so very early on. Mm. Okay, so before we turn to his novels that he started writing, let's talk about cinema and what was happening in the Berlin of these years, and what he was drawn to, and what he was watching. Yeah, that's a great question. So this is the era of silent film, right? The nineteen mm-hmm. twenties. For many people, this is the era that. The silent film really comes into its own. It turns out, they don't know this at the time, but it turns out that this is the last great decade of silent film because by the end of the 1920s, you have the arrival of sound. Mm-hmm. Now they had had sound already you know, for a long time, experimentation with sound. It was really at the end of that period that you have, that they are able to make it commercially viable on a mass scale You know, to convert cinema as a kind of enterprise to a sound one and so to convert the movie theaters to record alongside alongside the visual track to have the audio track so the 1920s is this kind of high point of weimar cinema right german cinema at this point is world famous and it's trying to compete with hollywood Hmm. so you have berlin as this kind of center for cinema where they're trying and, and many European countries at this point are trying to compete with, with this kind of flood of Hollywood films, which are, you know, deliberately marketed for export. Hollywood ha- already at this stage has this kind of huge commercial power. And so Nabokov is there in the 1920s watching movies maybe once every two weeks. So he's close friends with the Russian film critic in Berlin who writes for this newspaper called The Rudder. He's the same age as him. His name is Georgi Gessen, and he was able to supply Nabokov with tickets. So they went to the movies. And in the book, I I list every single review that Gessen did during these years. It's like over 300 films mm. to give a sense of what is this kind of mass of films. Yeah. We tend to assume that Okay, it's Nabokov. Well, Nabokov's not watching B-movies. Nabokov's watching Fritz Lang and Ronau, and he's cultured, he's an aesthete, right? But no, he actually is watching what was playing, and what was playing was mostly not auteur cinema and um, things that we now recognize as film art. Yeah. Yeah. So so probably some comedies, some westerns, some... All kinds of what we might now think of as genre movies. Yeah, that's a great way of describing it. And, you know, in Weimar film scholarship, there's been a turn towards thinking about genre film as mm-hmm. like the majority of what was watched. So if you're interested, there's a poem 
that Nabokov published in 1928 that I recently published the first kind of verse translation of this poem is pretty short. If you want, I can read it to you. It's a, it gives you a pretty good sense of how he viewed the cinema at the time. Yes, please do. So it's called The Cinema, Kinematograph. It goes like this. I love this fairground farce of light, more hopelessly with every scene. Cunning deceits revealed with ease by spies concealed across the screen. Their sewing symbolizes good. A glass of wine must stand for sin. The keenest eye will find no trace of mother's likeness to her kin. A rich young man, a tender heart, picks homeless girls up off the street and lays them down in spacious cars, all tiger fur from head to feet. Letters are scrawled in dead of night. Danger, alarm, the pen just flies across the page, yet all the words are perfect, flawless shape and size. We're shown a boudoir brightly lit, a shawl abandoned on the floor. Unseen, the clique projectors glare, unheard, the wild directors roar. But nothing there vibrates with life. Inquiring guests could scarcely say what living link ties man to thing, the imprint of the everyday. Splendid they are, cascades and chases, the darkly spinning glass abyss. But harmony's delights or flights of fancy, muse you're dearly missed. The villain dies, the hero weds, no matter setting, time or place. The cocksure philistine will dress in tritely gorgeous style each space. The end. In shadow, the piano dies after briefly taking flight. The world returns the cold noise. The waking dream dissolves to night. And out to brave the wind's damp force, the sales clerk and his girlfriend go. He cups the burning match, then smirks and passes judgment on the show. Okay, let's take a quick break and then come back with some more questions about Nabokov, the cinema, and his fiction. Okay, we're back. That poem was stunning to me. And as I was listening, I was kind of thinking, in some ways, you're right that I'm surprised that he's not viewing cinema and film as we might today as saying, oh, wow, this is a, uh, an exciting new art form. He does taking it as it as it was predominantly, which is something that the masses are going to and, and so on. But at the same time, he doesn't seem to have a feeling of, Oh, look at the people who are in the crowd watching this, but he's already assessing it for what are the stories? What are the plots? What are the characters? Who are the filmmakers who are putting this together? He's seeing it as, someone might read and try to analyze novels, for example. That's really interesting. I mean, I think you're right that he's not just looking ahead. He has this kind of 360 vision while he's in the movie theater. Mm. So he's watching what's going on on screen. He's also watching other people watching. Mm. Mm -hmm. So this is one of the things about the cinema in this period. I talk about it as a commonplace in the sense that it is both a almost a cliche of what it means to be modern 
what it means to be in this kind of European yet fairly Americanized culture industry of the 1920s and 30s. And at the same time, it's literally a place where these Russian emigres will sit alongside French and Germans and English who are all watching and laughing and crying and gasping at the screen. So yeah. it's this kind of very shared space. Yeah. And how much of that is because these were silent and it, it didn't require a, a fluency in a strange language for these emigres? Yeah. It's been called a universal language, right? Silent film, and not just later. At the time, it kind of pitched itself as this international thing, right? Hollywood got behind this because it's a way of reaching different markets, mm -hmm. uh, you know, market saturation. And there was a crisis, you know, when sound film is brought in. I think the other thing, though, about these Russian emigres, and we're talking about the most cultured most intellectual, kind of hyper-literate among them, right? I mean, there's more than a million of them, and they're not all. Right, Not all Nabokov, which is probably a good thing. Um, <laughs> but they are multilingual. They feel mm. themselves to be European. Mm -hmm. They have traveled abroad before the First World War. They spoke French, they spoke German, they spoke English, and they had read the literature and culture of all these different nations. So I think they felt at home in a certain way, and mm. at home even with the languages, you know, even with the intertitles and so on. I, I think they, yeah, I don't think they felt it was too foreign. Another thing I'll just add, this is going back in time, but it's important background, that it's not the case that Russians come out of Russia after the revolution and encounter this medium that's kind of new to them russia had a thriving film industry mm. in the 1900s and especially the 1910s and there was already a tradition so this is you know nabokov's teenage years there's already a tradition of high culture reacting to sometimes negatively but sometimes positively feeling invigorated by this new mass medium mm-hmm now, it seems we often will say that movies are a form of escape or an escapist entertainment. And, and it seems like, you know, this group of people who had fled Russian, if anybody could use to take a, an hour or two away from their troubles, it would be them. But Nabokov also strikes me as a pretty serious guy and is there to appreciate things on an artistic level and so on. Do you think he was different from his fellow moviegoers in that sense? Or was he really enjoying these as with with all of the difficulties in the world, here's a chance for me to while away some time where I, I'm not thinking about the news and the politics and so on of the world? So we have one eyewitness account of Nabokov watching a film mm -hmm. <laughs> during this period. Mm -hmm. And it does not describe somebody who is sitting there frowning mm. or stroking their chin or thinking too seriously it is the description of somebody who is laughing so hard at some american slapstick that he's just choking and he has to leave the movie theater because he's laughing so hard wow so that's wonderful I mean, this is the thing about that people talk about 
who knew him at that time, and they, and they talked about it at the time, that he's filled with this kind of joie de vivre. Like, he is a very positive, optimistic, certainly has a streak of a tease, you know, an ironist. Mm-hmm. And yet, there's this love of life that he radiates both in his fiction of that time and in his nonfiction, he writes essays, he gives talks to other emigres that are very, very positive about exile. They're incredibly accepting of the present moment as something that is a valid subject for fiction and that art can capture these fleeting moments and preserve them for what he calls a future historian. Mm-hmm. And it's captivating to read this stuff because there he is saying things like in the 20s of the 21st century everything from our you know surroundings will be valuable even the kind of smallest trifles will be treasured and you're sitting there in the 20s of the 21st century thinking you're right yeah i mean i'm rooting through the archives going to museums watching these old films trying to find these kind of traces of life then so he has this remarkable perspective right on on the the value of the present for a future that doesn't yet exist maybe the first thing that you find when you start reading nabokov is is the language and the the high art of his fiction and the visual is so strong and so on it doesn't take long before you realize he's also got this love for plots and in particular for the crime story and i'm wondering do you trace that back to his cinema going so the question of which comes first right when you think of plot and narrative we know that obviously narrative exists in many forms right and so you have narrative poetry as maybe the first great literary form right and then the development of tales and novels and so on and then cinema comes later right cinema follows the great age of the novel and so it's very tempting to kind of look into fiction of yeah of the early 20th century and to say look it borrows this device Mm. from the cinema yeah and yet i think when you look at it often the cinema borrows devices from literature and not just cheap ones Right, it of course borrows plots and characters, and is constantly, especially in this kind of earlier period, striving for some kind of legitimacy by having good actors, famous stories, trying to be part of this kind of higher culture than just it's somebody chasing somebody else. Right, mm-hmm. but there's also these these people are, are well read. I mean, the good kind of movie producers and directors of these years are cultured people and they are taking things from from literature so if thinking about detective fiction right this this is a great genre to kind of think about with mm-hmm. nabokov from his russian period all the way up through his american period right crime yeah he is a a huge fan as a child of sherlock holmes mm. or adventure stories of jules verne He's reading all of these kind of, I guess you call them kind of middle-brow, right, precursors that are great for children. He kind of retains an affection for them even, you know, later later in his life. So, no, I don't think he gets that from the cinema. Mm-hmm. I think what actually happens is that the cinema is a kind of space for a particular kind 
of person to make a career, it becomes a place where unscrupulous characters are able to flourish. They're able to use their talents. So in the Lusion Defense, that was published in 1929-1930, there's this amazing character, maybe my favorite Nabokov character, called Valentinov. And he has been many different things. He has, in the novel, he first appears as this, it's like an impresario, right? A kind of a Svengali-like figure who takes this young chess prodigy, mm. Lusion, and he takes him under his wing, he tours him all around Europe, and as soon as their money isn't there and the interest isn't there, he just drops him. And he next reappears as a movie producer in Berlin. Um, and it's this kind of idea that it's the, it's this new place that offers a space for a certain kind of entrepreneurial, but somewhat amoral character to flourish. Mm-hmm. So I think it's, you know, Nabokov is very attentive to the kind of off screen, behind the scenes world of movie making because he had been an extra. So in the early twenties, he had worked as an extra, like, many Russian emigres had. And so he had seen that world. He'd had this first-hand experience. Yeah. Did he ever, in these years, attempt to write screenplays or screen adaptations of his novels or any any efforts to try to make money through uh, either with Hollywood or the, the German film industry? Yeah. So he, all of those, so he starts writing scenarios, right? So film scenarios at this point, you remember this is silent film. So these are not screenplays with dialogue, mm, you know, mm-hmm. 50 pages long or whatever. These are short kind of scenarios. But he is writing those in the early 1920s, 1923, with his friends, different friends, and also on his own. And he's selling them. He also writes a an adaptation of one of his early stories, that kind of gets the interest of Lewis Milestone, who sends his representative, you know, and this is Lewis Milestone at the height of his fame, right? He's just made all quiet on the Western Front, early 1930s. He sends his representative to talk to Nabokov, January 1932. And they're really interested in this screenplay scenario at this point called The Love of a Dwarf. This, that's an adaptation of an earlier story he wrote called The Potato Elf. Mm. <laughs> very, very odd names. Um <laughs> Nothing ever came of it in the course of the project. And then since finishing it, I branched out into looking at many other figures from this world with a kind of a Russian or Soviet background. And you realize that failure doesn't need explanation mm. in this world because there's so many moving parts, so much contingency, and everything is such a big risk for the investors that mostly things don't pan out. And it's the successes that need explanation. Mm-hmm. But he does that in the 20s, early 30s, he's still working on this. And then when he moves to Paris in the late 1930s, he starts writing more. I mean, he says like five or six of these scenarios that he's writing, and uh, none of those are produced either. Mm, right. Okay. So I'm curious how you went about doing the research for this. And my understanding is you were drawing on a lot of archival material what materials were you able to consult and and what was in particular was most helpful yeah there were some interesting kind of unexpected places so the obvious ones were things like you know the complete run of this berlin russian newspaper called the rudder mm. in russian that's available in berlin parts of it are online 
just reading every page not in detail right but literally flipping through all of these issues you get this sense of the world of russian berlin yeah and you have to read not just the titles the headlines in english and uh, not just the headlines not just the kind of the excerpts of fiction which there were many right the kind of feuilleton at the bottom of the page but you also have to read the advertisements who's selling what what are they pitching to the russian audiences from the movies right yeah you really kind of get the sense of like what's being talked about what's being bought what's being sold so that was kind of an amazing experience in itself a less kind of expected one though was his american career while he's still in europe so we often think that you know he comes to america in 1940 during the second world war and he starts all over again yeah and he starts this new career when in fact from at least 1932 he had been looking for ways to get his work produced and translated in the United States and in the mid 30s he engages an american agent with a 5 year contract who is actively pitching all of these different novels to us publishers he has articles written about him in the new york times and the american mercury i mean he has the beginnings of a career in the united states and then he gets a contract from the indianapolis based publisher bobs merrill who was famous for the wizard of oz joy of cooking and later ayn rand's fountainhead mm. so interesting company yeah right in many very interesting company and yet this audience so the russian emigres there's there's a whole section in the book where i talk about these debates that went on between russian emigres mostly published in paris which was the center of publishing nabokov was unusual in living in berlin for most of the time but he also in the 30s published in paris and they're very canny about mm. what hollywood represents they say hollywood is not the west coast or the east coast it's not california or new york in order to succeed in hollywood right as a writer to get your stuff produced and be a success you have to appeal to what they call mm. hick country they hick literally country. call it hick yeah. country <laughs> and I guess the heartland is the the nice way of putting it, but uh, hick country is probably how they actually think of it in Hollywood. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, the these kind of masses, um, and, you know, and this becomes a big issue with censorship under the mm, production mm -hmm. code. Yeah, right, where you will have this kind of self censorship basically in in Hollywood, and then you will have individual states, individual cities will then do their own further censorship. And obviously, it varies between different regions. Yeah. But all of this is to say that this Indianapolis-based publisher, though, has an office in California that was set up in the early 1920s precisely for film adaptations, and they actually do very well uh -huh. with film adaptations of kind of middle-brow fiction. And yeah. so this is the publishing house that takes on Nabokov's rewrite of his earlier novel called *Camera Obscura*. It's kind of a film novel into laughter in the dark so mm. this becomes his first american novel and so all of this is to say their archive in indiana at the lily library in indiana university was where i found all of these reader reports written by american kind of you know professional readers for this publishing house reading all of nabokov's fiction 
and saying this we can publish this we can't this would be great this wouldn't be good oh, wow um it's it's so revealing yeah. so revealing yeah when nabokov was targeting the united states for his novels was that a response to the storm clouds on the horizon in Europe or uh, in Germany in particular? Or was he looking for a bigger market? Or could you tell why he was so uh, determined to land in America? So America was one of the options. Britain and France were the other two. Mm -hmm. And yeah, clearly there's an impetus there given by the depression that causes social unrest in europe you know clearly by the mid-20s the emigres are very aware of the fact that contrary to their original plans they're not going back to russia anytime soon mm. so this exile is permanent it's kind of poignant right now book writes about this future russian reader yeah the, you know a lot of his russian fiction is written for a reader that doesn't yet exist because there's only a Soviet reader, and they're not getting their hands on any Nabokov. Yeah, <laughs> not until much, right. much, much, much later, until after he died, right? So there's that. But I think it's also important to point out that he had a trilingual career from the very beginning. So not only are his first two prose works translations from French and from English, but also his first two novels, Mary and King Queen Knave, published in 1926 and 1928, were translated into German. Mm immediately by this huge publishing house, Ulstein, like the big publishing house in, in Germany at that point. So he's looking for a transnational career as, I would say, both a kind of a natural metamorphosis for him, right? He says he has a perfectly normal trilingual upbringing, right? Uh, he already speaks these languages, but he also sees it as a natural extension of what he sees as the essentially kind of European and international nature of Russian literature. Hmm. So there's a kind of an organic connection. And then there's the kind of, yeah, clearly there's a social and kind of political crisis happening in Europe at this point. But he doesn't know where he's going to end up. You know, the mid-30s, he's got agents in, and promoters in, in Britain, in France, in the United States. He's doing plays stories, translations, new novels in Russian. I mean, he's doing everything. And I think not just for himself, he's doing it for his family as well. So his son is born in 1934. And Berlin is not the place you want to raise a child, especially not a Russian emigre child, especially not a Russian emigre child whose mother is Jewish. So Nabokov's wife is Jewish. And she's able to keep working for several years before she's finally fired. But I mean, it's hair raising thinking mm. about, yeah. you know, those four years between 33 and 37 that he stayed in Berlin. Yeah. So do you think it seems like there's a couple of responses that someone in Nabokov's position could have taken in response to exile? And one would be to go all in on politics, as it sounds like his father sort of did, and to say, we were wronged, we've been ejected from our homeland, this can't stand, this government is untenable, we need to do what we can to engage in the politics of our day. And the other is to say, politics is politics, and we are sort of victims of history here, but we're not necessarily just defined by our Russian-ness. We're, we're European, and 
even more broadly, the world of art is bigger than this, and and we can be citizens of the world now, so to speak, or or citizens of the world of literature, or the world of art. And do you think that he was responding to what happened to his father in kind of going down the latter path instead of trying to get back to Russia, but to to basically move on and, and to view that as a chapter in his life that had perhaps closed as regrettable as it was, but to embrace the kind of world where he was creating things and kind of looking to new continents and, and living through this double exile, so to speak? I think there is a generational element to this, to be sure. Mm-hmm. So you see a real difference between those who come over in their 40s, 50s, mm. 60s even, mm-hmm. who have you know an established career and everything they've ever known has been in Russian. And of yeah. course, for a writer, it's that kind of readership mm-hmm. and that native language that is so important. So I think, yes, there's that. And it's definitely part of Nabokov's generation. So he's born in 1899. There's, a se- there's several of his friends, fellow writers, who are born in the same kind of right at the turn of the century, who, you know, come over as teenagers, young adults, right? I mean, doesn't have an established career and and is in his 20s. So the world's his oyster. There's possibilities. He's multilingual. Um, He's talented. He's not starving, right? I mean, there's a network of his father's friends. He's the son of a famous father. So there is a kind of support network in place for him there. Mm Mm-hmm. On the other hand, his father was a political figure before the revolution, was very well known. He helped found the cadet party, the Constitutional Democrat Party, and had been a politician since the 1905 revolution. So he was really instrumental in trying to reform Tsarism, even though he is an aristocrat himself. He's very liberal, is a famous jurist, so kind of fighting for the rights, publicly speaks out against the pogroms that were happening and suffers as a result of it, pushes legal reform in terms of sexual rights, homosexuality, right? I mean, he's really a kind of a brave and outspoken figure who is trying to reform Tsarism. So it's not like he comes into the revolution, he's trying to restore Tsarism, they want a constitutional democratic regime. Mm. The other thing is his father is maybe even a bigger Anglophile than he is. Mm. This is, you know, a huge fan of English literature, used to read Dickens to his kids. There was a shop that they would go to on Nevsky Prospekt in in St. Petersburg, where they would buy all these kind of English soaps and stuff. Nabokov talks in kind of charming ways about this in in Speak Memory. Mm -hmm. And so... Yeah, so I would say in that way, this younger generation is not necessarily departing from many of those figures from the older generation. It's more about what's, what possibilities are available to them. One of the things that's very interesting about studying exiled figures is that sometimes when they succeed, they assimilate and kind of disappear from the field that you started studying them in. So you start studying this kind of, there were several writers at, the point, at that point who turned to writing in another language and they kind of drop out of the field of Slavic mm. East European studies and become something else completely different. And right. you kind of see some of that with Nabokov, right? He is taught in English departments and he is taught in Russian departments, Slavic departments. 
Right. And to grab hold of his kind of coattails at the beginning and follow him all the way through his career, you end up dragged into somebody else's field quite literally, which I think is a, is a good challenge for us as kind of scholars and cultural historians is to realize that the people we're talking about are not bounded by the disciplines that we happen to have been educated in. And we have to broaden our own horizons and talk to bigger audiences than just the, you know, national linguistically defined Russian English. Right. My last question is about your book subtitle with the phrase, The Art of Exile, which I thought could mean a couple of things. One would be art created in exile, and the other would be to view exile as a kind of art. Uh, Did you have in mind one or the other or both? So the art of exile for me is that Nabokov uses the cinema. He instrumentalizes it in a way that I think is quite unique. But I think it's related to his attempts to not just describe exile, not just create an art, that describes exile, not just to think through exile and theorize it, but literally to survive it. Mm. Because there's a sense in which for his own personal career as as an artist, that migration and translations and adaptations and kind of is a form of capitalizing on various markets and reaching new audiences. It's a kind of a natural thing, exile or not. But there's also a kind of urgency that's there for him and his young family, especially heading into the 1930s, where borders are closing, opportunities are disappearing, and there were very, very real threats, military and paramilitary threats on the horizon. So the cinema is this way of kind of, you know, I call it cinema praxis instead of like cinema theory, right? So it's this kind of practical application of using the cinema to reach these audiences and to get yourself out of the situation that you find yourself in. And so he moves from Germany, he gets to Paris, and then he's able in May 1940 to take one of the last ships literally out of France as the Germans are invading and make it to America. And the letter that he gets from Bob's Merrill from this publishing house, I think is instrumental in enabling him to get the exit visa to get out. So it has these kind of amazingly practical, non-aesthetic, and yet very important to our consideration of a writer's career consequences. The book is called Nabokov Noir, Cinematic Culture and the Art of Exile. Luke Parker, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Okay, there we go. My thanks to Luke Parker for joining me today. Please do check out his book, Spend a Little Time with Nabokov and Noir Together, a very fine pairing. I would say it's like peanut butter and jelly, but that seems inappropriate somehow. My guess is Nabokov would scorn me for that one. Maybe like Port and Stilton? Is that more his speed, champagne and caviar? Or how about... More like the pairing of a butterfly landing on a tennis racket. Or even better, on a chessboard. Maybe landing on just the right square to show our prodigy the way. Enlightening. Speaking of which, we have a lot of enlightening episodes coming your way, including Catullus, that miserable wretch. Love is a great motivator for poets, especially when that love has been deprived. 
We have an episode on the art of war by Sun Tzu coming up, and we might even get to Jane Austen's Emma before too long, but no need to look that far in the distance when we have Jane Austen's Persuasion coming up in the near term. And Nabokov was turned around by his reading of Mansfield Park. He didn't like Jane Austen until he read that book, and he said, oh, oh boy, I guess I need to rethink this Jane Austen thing. My, my opinions must change. <laughs> So I suppose we'll need to include that novel on our list, too, at some point. You can look in our archives for Pride and Prejudice and Sense and Sensibility, and also lots of other episodes about Jane Austen, including her relationship with the uh, lover, well, not quite lover, her, her beau, Tom Lafroy, and the doomed love that they shared. When will we get to Mansfield Park? We have so much to do before then. But I want to read it now. (laughs) Well, maybe 2024. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time.